0: Please turn me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 10, verses 36 through 48. And by the way, we're only getting through verse 43 this morning. So Acts 10, 36 through 43. Remember, the book of Acts focuses on the ministry of God the Holy Spirit through his people. So far in Acts, we have seen the start, the rise, and the spread of the church. And now here in Acts chapter 10, the good news of Christ has spread not just to the Jews, but also to the Samaritans, and now to the Gentiles. And so the Gospel has gone out from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, just as Jesus said in Acts 1.8. we're now looking at the ministry of Peter, remember that? Peter was in Joppa when he went into a trance and had a vision that greatly perplexed him. God then said, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. And that didn't just deal with what you should eat, but it dealt with the church, and how the church will now be made up of both Jewish believers and Gentile believers, which is something new. Meanwhile, Cornelius, a Gentile from Caesarea, had a vision from an angel who told him to send for Peter, who will then tell him what he must do. So he sent some men to go to Joppa to get Peter, a journey of about 30 miles, which they did, and Peter made his way up to Caesarea, better understanding his vision and realizing more and more that God is indeed preparing the way for Gentiles to be a part of the church. Peter met up with Cornelius, who had a bunch of his friends and relatives there with him at his house. They got all caught up on things, and then Peter began to preach. Peter started by saying that he now knows that God shows no partiality, but now the welcome mat for the gospel has been clearly put out for everyone, not just for the Jews and also for the Gentiles. And now Peter is going to get into the heart of his Real message. Let's go ahead and look at that. We'll start there in verse 36. Verse 36. Peter preaching. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, He's Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea, and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. We're going to stop here for now. And here in this passage, there are three Important facts to note, the first being this, that the word which God had sent has been preached, verse 36, 37. Note that it says the word, which is specific. What word is that? Talking about the gospel, the the good news of Jesus Christ. And as we've seen in Acts, it was this good word that was indeed preached to the Jews first, beginning in Acts 2 and going all the way up to chapter 10. But now look, the light, is beginning to dawn in Peter's Jewish mind that this word wasn't just for the Jews. But it's also a word for the Gentiles. Yes, it was sent first to the children of Israel, but it's now going to be sent to everyone else as well. Anybody grateful for that? Me too. As Paul would later write in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, that good word, for it's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also... For the Greek. So, the word for them is also the word for us, for you, Cornelius, and then for the rest of you Gentiles as well. What word is that? Peter gives a general summary of it before he breaks it down for them. Look at what he says, verse 36 preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He's Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. So, Here Peter acknowledges that even these Gentiles had some familiarity with the events that had taken place and with what our Lord had done. You guys know what he says. It wasn't done in secret. It's been proclaimed throughout all of Judea and you know of the ministry of Jesus and how it began from Galilee in the north after the preaching of John the Baptist. You know. So Peter gives a bit of a sequence of events and the first event is that John the Baptist came preaching and baptizing, and the Lord's ministry followed that. So John's ministry was really just an introduction. It prepared the nation for its true king, and for the message of peace that comes through the king alone. And that's what this is about, right? Peace. That's the message, right? Peace with God, which only Jesus Christ can give. Preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he's Lord of all. That's what it's about, right? I mean, in a nutshell. That peace with God comes through Jesus Christ, and that's the message that was preached throughout Israel, and that's the message that Peter's going to preach to these Gentiles right now. The gospel of peace. The good news. That through Jesus Christ, God has established peace between himself and man. The implication is that without Christ that we're in a state of war. That's a biblical fact, is it not? That war is what exists between God and man. That mankind is in rebellion against its maker. And we see that fact all the way through the Word of God from Genesis chapter 3 on. That the natural person, the unbelieving person, is hostile towards God. He's at war with God. Not with religion, but with the one true God. And there's a big difference there. Humanity, see, is very, very religious. Look at every culture and you find religion abounding. You find shrines and temples and robes and incense and all kinds of ceremony. In Myanmar, you see people saying all kinds of prayers to Buddha and pouring water over images and putting gold leaves on the Buddhas and doing all kinds of religious things. Oh yeah, man loves religion. But he's opposed to the God of the Bible, the one true God. We like to do things our own way, even when our own way leads to death. Please remember, religion will not save you. Religion has never saved anyone. Good works will not save you. Good works haven't saved anyone ever. Doing stuff won't save you. Saying prayers, fasting, giving to charity, going to church, being nice, none of these religious and good things can save you because they can't make you right with God. They can't bring you at peace with God. No, only Jesus can do that. We're at war with God, and only Jesus Christ, God the Son, Lord of all, can bring us together. And so biblically, according to God who is the one right authority in the universe, the world's at war with God, but Christ came to change all that, and look, He is able, praise the Lord, He is able to change all that because He's God, because He's Lord of all. Peter says that in verse 36, he calls Him the Lord of all, and that's a way of ascribing deity deity. To Jesus. See, He's not just a great teacher. He's not just a great rabbi. He's not just a great prophet. He's not just a great healer. No, He's infinitely more than that. Biblically, He's God the Son. He's Lord of all. He's Lord over both the Jews and the Gentiles. And He's the one who can make you right with God. And He's the one who can save your soul. Your eternal soul. From the just wages of your sin. He alone. He can bring you to heaven. He can give you hope, real hope. He can rescue your soul from hell and from Satan. He can give you joy eternal. He alone. Christ alone. Peter gets specific about this in verse 38 by saying that first, God anointed Jesus. Verses 38 through 43. Let's go ahead and look at that. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are as witnesses of all the things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people, and to testify that it's he who is ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Good message, is it not? Look, God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power, Peter says. What does that mean? That's referring to what happened when Jesus was baptized. You remember that? John the Baptist was getting people ready for the coming of the Messiah, the coming deliverer for the people, and then one day, the Messiah, the deliverer, came. Jesus wandered down to the Jordan River, and John turned to him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John then baptized Jesus, not for repentance, and Jesus was sinless, but for a number of very important reasons. This is where the ministry of Jesus really began. This is where God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Remember what happened? The Holy Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove, and then God the Father spoke, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That's very significant because the Spirit coming upon Jesus is the sign and the seal of His Messiahship. That He is the Christ, that He is indeed the anointed one, the set apart one. In Isaiah chapter 1 and also in chapter 61, it says concerning the ministry of the Messiah Jesus that it would be characterized by the possession of the Holy Spirit. In Isaiah chapter 42, God says, I have given my Spirit upon Him. So the Spirit descending on Jesus reveals much. Also, the Spirit came to help Jesus carry out His divine ministry. Say what? Did Jesus, God, the Son... Did he need the Holy Spirit? Did he need God the Spirit? Answer, yes. Well, isn't Jesus God in human flesh? Answer, yes. And that's the mystery of the incarnation, right? Of Jesus being 100% God and 100% man at the same time when he came here. That while that's true, Jesus did indeed need the power of the Spirit because he didn't come into this world to live as God, but because he came to this world to live as a man. Philippians 2, 6-8 tells us that being Jesus in the form of God, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So even though Jesus was in his very nature God, and even though he never ever ceased to be fully God, He willingly laid aside His rights and privileges as God, and He took on humanity, full humanity, save sin. And in that humanity, Jesus voluntarily, moment by moment, submitted to human limitations apart from sin. See, while He was here, He submitted to the will of the Father. He waived the exercise of His own rights as God, and He did only what God the Father asked Him to do. And again, even though He never ceased to be God, He needed the power of God, the Holy Spirit, to accomplish everything that he needed to accomplish. For everything that Jesus did, he did as a Spirit-filled man. As a Spirit-filled man, he lived a perfect life. He satisfied the just demands of God's law. He perfectly kept every rule and every regulation. And then as a man, he went to the cross to die so that he could shed his innocent, perfect blood as the atonement for every believer's sin. So the Spirit descending on Jesus and filling Him is a critical moment. Because just as Jesus depended on the Father for strength, so too did Jesus depend on the Spirit for strength to do all that He needed to do in order to save wretched sinners like us. And His baptism is where God anointed Jesus for this ministry. It's where the public ministry of Jesus began. And Peter points that out. He's taken Him. Through this progression, see, what did Jesus do? Second, He went about doing good. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with Him. Could He ever do any less than good? In His earthly life and ministry, Jesus withstood Satan. He cast out demons. He healed the crippled and the sick. He cleansed the lepers. He raised the dead and He proclaimed the gospel to the lost. That's all. That's all. He went about doing good. He only went about <coughs> doing good. And specifically, look, he healed all who were oppressed by the devil. See, Jesus came into the world to destroy the works of the devil, so he went about doing good while Satan went about the world doing evil, and they were in cl- conflict from the time that he got here. He asked, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed to the devil. So does that mean that all disease is related to the devil? Yes. Yes. That doesn't mean that every time you get sick that the devil is possessing you or that the devil is oppressing you. No. But it does mean that all illness is related to the devil. How so? Because it's all a part of the system of this world which sin has created. And if you have no Satan, then you have no sin or sickness or disease, you see. So sometimes sickness is directly related to demonic possession. And the Gospels tell us that. Sometimes. Sometimes. But always, sickness is a result of Satan's curse on the earth. And so all illness, directly or indirectly, is related to Satan and to the principle of sin in the world. Look, Eden was perfect, right? Eden was perfect. But once sin came in, so came the curse, and with the curse came sickness, pain, disease, death, and so on. And it all ties back to Satan. And look, when Jesus came into the world, he immediately started fighting against Satan's system. And one great way to fight it was to destroy the power of disease and to destroy the power of death. So He healed the sick sick, and He even raised some dead people. And so Jesus came and He entered into conflict with Satan and He did some amazing miracles and it was apparent to everybody that God was with Him. It was obvious that God was active in him, that he was of God, that this was God uh, in the body of a man doing miracles and causing great distress to Satan and to his demons. And as we know, Jesus would not only distress Satan, but he would fight against Satan and he would win. And Peter will get to that in just a second. John MacArthur says it like this, Satan's only got two things he can really use, disease and death. And Jesus, all through his life, was smashing Satan's disease power. Satan had one other great power, the power of death, and he tried to use it on Jesus. So the devil tried to stop him by killing him. That's the last power he had. Guess what? It didn't work. Ha, it didn't work. So, Jesus, Lord of all, he came and went about doing good, and he fought, fought the devil, and what happened? Third, look, they killed him. They killed him. The world lies under the sway of the wicked one, and when God came here, the people killed him. Think about that. Jesus, Lord of all, God the Son, the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Anointed, sent out Messiah, they killed him. When all he did was go about doing good and fighting the devil. Why did they kill him? Because people are sinners and they love darkness more than light, John 1 says. Because the world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Verse 39, and we are witnesses of all the things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem whom they killed by hanging on a tree. That phrase hanging on a tree is an idiom for a person being crucified on a cross. And that statement that he was hung on a cross would have had particular relevance to the Gentile audience because that was their form of execution. It was brutal. It was disgraceful. It was an utterly horrific way to die. Except in extreme cases of treason, Roman citizens were exempt from crucifixion because it was so utterly vicious. Cicero condemned it as a most cruel and disgusting punishment. But look, Peter says that Jesus, who is Lord of all, was hanged on a cross. He died painfully, shamefully, disgracefully. He died as a as a cursed man. And that's what the cross was designed to impress on people. That the one who died on the cross was cursed. The same word for cross is a word for tree, and the Apostle Paul used it in the same way in Galatians 3.13, where he quotes Deuteronomy 21, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. You know, that's what Christ became. He became a cursed man, not because he was guilty. No, he wasn't. He never sinned. He only did good. He lived a completely obedient and perfect life. But look, he became a curse for us as our substitute. He died in our place for us who believe. He bore the curse of death for us in our place as believers. And it was by His death that He satisfied the Father's justice against the sinner and made peace between God and man. And only Jesus Christ can do that. Hey, saving your sinful soul was very costly. Very costly. God's forgiveness is always conditioned on the shedding of blood, on death, and ultimately on the cross of Jesus Christ. God is holy, and He can't forgive sin unless His justice is first fully satisfied, and that could only happen through the death of the Son. The Bible says that we're all sinners, and sin not only separates us from God, but condemns us all to hell, the just punishment for sin. You ask, how is that just? Hell for just one sin? Eternity in hell for one sin, really. This question shows us that we don't understand what true holiness is and we don't understand how heinous sin really is. This might help. See, our God is an infinite God and sin against an infinite God demands infinite wages. Hell forever, eternal separation from God. Therefore, either we pay the wages of our sin for an infinite amount of time or else an infinite and worthy one pays for it once. Who's that? Jesus God the Son. That's exactly what He did in our place on the cross. Second Corinthians 5.21 He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. See, on the cross, God treated Jesus as if He had committed every sin ever committed by every person who would ever believe, even though He committed none. And look, every sin ever committed by every person who would ever believe was not only put on to Jesus while He was there on that cross, but He was also punished for that sick and horrendous sin. Jesus was on the cross for six hours. For the last three hours, it got pitch black. Why? Because darkness represents judgment. Judgment on who? Judgment on Christ. Why? Because He had taken all of our sin as believers onto Himself. And He was being punished for that sin so that we wouldn't have to be. And so for those three hours, Jesus suffered the eternal hell of all the people throughout human history who would be saved. And because He's God the Son, the Infinite One, He could therefore receive an infinite and eternal amount of wrath on the cross in our place instead of us going to hell for our sin. Jesus did that for you, His child. Come on. Come on, how how amazing is that? See, sin is a debt too great for any man or woman or child to pay. It's beyond us. Sin separates man from God with a gulf, a chasm between the two that no man can bridge. Only Jesus Christ can do that. Only Christ could pay the debt and, and bridge that gulf. And He could do that because He's God, God the Son, Lord of all, see? So again, saving your soul was costly. God the Son had to die on a cross to do it. And so He did it. You think He loves you? Anybody? You think He loves you? Come on. We might ask, how how do we know that that's true? How can we know that He actually accomplished all of that? Here's how. Fourth, and Peter's going through it, right? God raised Jesus on the third day. Verse 40. Him God raised on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So they killed him, but God raised him up. So the father raised up the son from the dead, which is true. But scripture also tells us that the spirit took part in raising the son from the dead. Romans 8, 11. And then even the son himself was active in the resurrection for Jesus said in John 2, 19, destroy this temple. In other words, kill me. And in three days I will raise it up. So All three members of the Godhead were active in raising Jesus up from the grave. The resurrection, see, is a crowning proof not only of Christ's deity, but also of the guarantee of our victory and resurrection from death to life. Look, He died to pay the penalty of your sin. He rose to give you life. And both of those things are necessary. Without the resurrection, we're empty. Well... Paul says without the resurrection of all men we're the most pitiable. See, the resurrection proves all of it. Without the resurrection we're doomed. Not because uh, but because he rose from the dead sinners like us can be saved from eternal wrath from the just wages of our sin that condemns us. What a message we have. Come on. Jesus is alive. Jesus conquered death and sin. What Jesus did on the cross is a reality. For us who believe, you can now be forgiven of all your sin. You can go to heaven instead of hell. Your sin as a believer was placed onto Jesus and he was punished for all that sin. And his righteousness is now credited to you. And his resurrection is proof of that reality. And look, it was undeniable. There were many witnesses. They even ate with him after his resurrection. F.F. F. Bruce says it like this. It is particularly striking that neither on this nor on any subsequent occasion did the Sanhedrin take any serious action to disprove the Apostle's central affirmation, the resurrection of Jesus. Had it seemed possible to refute them on this point, how readily would the Sanhedrin have seized the opportunity? Had they succeeded, how quickly and completely the new movement would have collapsed. But look, they couldn't do it because the resurrection is truth. And that fact marks Jesus out from all the founders of all religions because they're all still dead in their graves. But the Lord's grave is empty, and that's a necessary part of the gospel. For the cross and the empty tomb go together because we have a living Savior who rose bodily up from the grave. He wasn't a phantom, see. The disciples didn't have a hallucination. No, they saw the Lord Jesus Christ physically, bodily, Raised from the dead. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that over 500 witnesses were able to see Him at the same time. It's a well-established fact. That means that the grave isn't the end for the people of God. Amen? It's not the end. Death can't hold us. It will not hold us. And because Christ triumphed over death and because every believer in Jesus is attached to Him, joined to Him, in Him, look, we too... Will conquer death and live. So, for us in Christ, death is indeed our best day. It's where real, real life begins. Jesus died, securing our salvation, and Jesus rose, ensuring (coughs) our victory. Fifth, Peter points out that God commanded believers to preach about Jesus, verse 42. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it's He who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To Him all the prophets witness that through His name whoever believes in Him will receive remission of sins. So Peter says, He commanded us to preach and to testify the truth about Jesus and woe to us if we don't. We're His witnesses. And we have some real good news. Soul-saving news to share. And we must share it even when there's a price to be paid for sharing it. Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Or we're witnesses. And we must testify to the truth of Jesus Christ even when it's hard. Even when it means pain because this message saves souls. And we're called to shine In a dark world, we're called to be salt and light. We're to go. We're the aroma of Christ. We're living letters read by all. We're the spiritual watchmen for the people around us. And woe to us if we don't testify. Woe to us if we don't bear witness, for we must. And that's not just for true for Peter and the apostles, but for every Christian today. How could we not? You have loved ones who are heading for hell. Neighbors, acquaintances, friends, enemies, and here we are. And we have Jesus and life and forgiveness and hope. And you are their witnesses to the truth that can save. You can't save them. God saves, but you can testify. Look, there are about 200 million non-church people in America, making America one of the four largest unchurched nations in the world. Here we are. And we can, we've got the best news ever to share. Lord, help us to share. Lord, help us to care. Lord, help us to act for His glory. We're not stones, are we? We care, do we not? Judgment day is coming, Peter says. Judgment day is coming, and everyone will stand before the judge. And Jesus will be to every person who's ever lived, either their Savior or their sentencer. Jesus is the dividing line of every man's eternal destiny. Either one of forgiveness or one of judgment. It's one or the other. And so, what you do with Jesus is vitally of utmost importance. And the question is, have you surrendered to Him in repentant faith for forgiveness in life? That's the issue. What will you do with Jesus? Neutral you cannot be. Someday your heart will be asking, what will He do with me? Note that no person is able to escape judgment, for everyone must appear before God. The expression, the living and the dead, is used to indicate that everyone is included when Christ judges people. And again, you either belong to Jesus and you're going to go to heaven, or else you've rejected Jesus as Lord and Savior, and you will pay sin's wages on your own, which is hell. The warning, seek forgiveness of sin through faith in Jesus Christ, so that when you appear before the God-appointed judge, you will be acquitted. Because you are in Christ, who already paid sin's wages in your place. So, judgment is coming and no one will escape. And the question is, are you ready? Are you in Christ? Are you saved? The good news? That whoever believes in Him will receive the remission of sins, the forgiveness of sins. How good is that? Thank you. Come on, this is... this is. This is, is there a better word for guilty sinners like us? Forgiven. We stand forgiven. It literally means to send away, to let go, to remove, to cancel, to release, to pardon. It means to once and for all take the sin away and then to also remove the guilt and the punishment and the power of that sin. Come on, that's the best news ever, especially when the price for our sin is hell and eternal wrath. Henry Law writes that, Forgiveness is remission of due penalties, the obliteration of incurred guilt, the withdrawal of just displeasure, the blotting out of accusing handwriting, the burying all offenses into oblivion, the hushing of the loud thunder of the law, the canceling of its tremendous curse, the consigning to a sheath, the sword of justice. It's the frown of Jehovah softening into eternal smiles. Forgiveness encounters sin and strips it of its destroying power. How amazing is it to stand forgiven before holy God? Warren Wiersbe says it. Forgiveness is the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performs. It meets the greatest need. It costs the greatest price. It brings the greatest blessing and the most lasting results. That's right. Psalm 103.12 As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Forgiveness is everything. For when you stand forgiven, you have everything that truly matters. Heaven, mercy, agape, love, God, grace, hope, Eternal life. So give me pain, poverty, trials and hardship, but let me be forgiven by God and it's all worth it. But to have wealth and health and long life and riches and houses and good looks and fame and not be forgiven of God, it means absolutely nothing. And so, if you're here and you stand forgiven today by the Lord, if you're a Christian If you have confessed him and have surrendered to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and repentant faith, you have it all. You have it all. Nothing else matters in light of this. One said, forgiveness means that God buries our sin and does not mark the grave or leave the hatchet handle exposed. That's right. And as Christians, because Jesus, God the Son, the Lord of all, died in our place and rose up from the dead, we are forgiven forever. What a gift. What a God. How does this happen? Peter says, by believing in Jesus. Belief. Faith. Faith alone. Belief is faith or trust in Christ alone for salvation and life. Not works. Our good works can't save anybody. Nobody's ever been saved by good works. His work saves. And we receive His salvation and forgiveness by faith. Faith alone. Not, note that true biblical faith can, conveys the idea of adherence, commitment, reliance, and trust. It involves not only the consent of the mind, but, but an act of the, the heart, an act of the will. Biblically, saving faith isn't just mere intellectual assent. The demons believe and shudder. That, that's not saving faith. Saving faith is something that goes on and has an impact on your life. W.E. Vine said that biblical belief consists of, one, a firm conviction which produces full acknowledgement of God's truth. Two, a personal surrender to Christ, and three, a conduct inspired by such surrender. So saving beliefs speaks of something that takes place in the heart and in the mind and then in the heart and then reveals itself with with action. It speaks of something that changes both your mind and your life. Uh, It speaks of surrender. It it speaks of a change of direction. And look, all who believe, truly believe in Christ's person and work, forgiven, saved justified, because of Jesus. So Peter's just giving out the good news to these Gentiles, right? He's just preaching the good news to them. And look, while he's still speaking, that's when the Holy Spirit fell on those who heard the words of Peter. We're going to look at that next week, verses 44 through 48. But based on what happened in verse 44... This shows us that the end of verse 43 is when Cornelius and the others with him believed and were saved. Isn't that amazing? I don't think Peter was done preaching. I think he had much more to say. In verse 43 he mentions how the prophets of old witnessed about Christ. And I think Peter was going to talk about that and and drive that point home. He was going to nail that point. But he didn't have to. For as soon as Peter got the truth out about Jesus and who he is and what he did and how he died and how he rose up from the dead and then how people are saved and forgiven by faith, that's the exact moment that they immediately believed and were then saved. Just like that. They heard it all. That was enough. Faith, salvation, forgiveness in that moment. Isn't that awesome? God is awesome. And he's good. Anybody? He's good at saving dead, lost, desperate, needy sinners. Anybody? Right? We know. You know. Who can Jesus save? Anyone. I remember Victor well. Victor was a drug addict. He was also addicted to nearly every everything else that you could think of. Victor, man, that guy had a rough life. He was the last person you would ever thought would become a Christian. He was too far gone. (laughs) But one day, Victor came to church. We all knew it. (laughs) It wasn't long before Victor surrendered to Christ in repentant faith and God saved him from all his wretched sin. And God began to change Victor little by little from the inside out. Who can God save? Anyone. I remember Bruce. Bruce was a cheater. Bruce was an adulterer. Bruce came to church as a last resort because he was about to lose everything that mattered to him in his life. Bruce heard the Gospel and he realized that even if he still loses his marriage, which he might, Jesus can forgive him. And Jesus can still save his desperate soul. And what can you give in exchange for a soul? Bruce then surrendered to Christ and as he was overwhelmed that Jesus would and could forgive him of all his terrible sin, he said, but I'm so weak and I'm so feeble and I stumble every day. Bruce, when you fall, get back up and keep pursuing Christ because you love Him. Never quit pursuing Christ and he still is pursuing Christ. He's now now a deacon in that church. Who can God save? I remember Henry. Henry was a convict. Henry was a gang member. Henry was a very rough man. Henry had a, an obscene tattoo on his arm. <laughs> I couldn't sit by Henry. I had to move away from Henry because all I stared at was his tattoo. Henry has a lost soul. But Henry heard the gospel in prison and one day Henry showed up at church and he surrendered to Christ and repentant faith. And God changed Henry forever. slowly, But surely, I'm not sure what Henry's doing today. He might be in heaven. But I do know that he was saved, that he loved the Lord, and that God can save anyone, even someone like you. I remember Betty. Anybody remember Betty Adams? Betty's daughter came to church, but Betty didn't. She certainly didn't know Christ as Lord and Savior. But Betty's husband was dying, and so one day she came to church with her daughter. Betty's husband soon did die, and Betty then began thinking about the condition of her own soul. She had lived for decades and decades as a nice but unsaved soul. But she heard the gospel, and while she didn't know much, she knew enough to understand that she was a desperate, needy sinner in need of a great big Savior, Jesus Christ. And so she surrendered to Jesus in repentant faith and was saved and forgiven of all her sin. Betty was the first soul that was baptized here at Faith Community Church. She was so scared to get her face wet. (laughs) But she did it. And Betty has been in heaven for about 15 years now. Who can God save? Come on. If he can save a Jewish man named Peter, and if he can save a Gentile man named Cornelius, then he can also save your lost loved one. And that's why we keep praying and keep shining the light of Christ to them, because who knows? But please don't give up hope and please don't quit praying and testifying the good news of Christ to them. Jesus is good at saving desperate, lost souls. And don't we know it? We have heard the joyful sound. Anybody? Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Spread the goodness all around. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Bear the news to every land. Climb the steeps and cross the waves. Onward tis our Lord's command. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Give the winds a mighty voice. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Let the nations now rejoice. Jesus saves. Shout salvation full and free. Highest hills and deepest caves. This our song of victory. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Good thing for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for saving lost Gentiles. Thank you, Lord, that you're a saving God, that you're a forgiving God, that you're a merciful God, that you're a good God, that you give us what we don't deserve because we deserve to go to hell. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for giving us hope. Lord, we don't save people, but, but you use us. Help us, Lord, to have a heart. Help us to pray earnestly for the lost around us and help us to be a light and to share the good news and to keep it up till our dying breath. Thank you. Use us. Give us perspective. Help us to go out and honor you with our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen.